Before uh, we jump in uh, to our series, uh, a couple of things. First of all, I want you to know, and this is a prayer request, we have a number of people in our church that are going through some really difficult times right now. All of a sudden, some physical things have come up out of the blue. Um, there's been some deaths in extended families. And more specifically, I want to invite you to pray for the Pearson family. Dan Pearson has been our head usher for 35 years, three and a half decades. And their daughter, Laura, who's a young mother, uh, was driving where she lives in Southern California, and her vision got cloudy, and, and she pulled over, and in just a short time, she died of what probably uh, was an aneurysm. And so Dan and Diane are mom and dad. Susan is a sister of Laura's. They've been a part of this church forever. And let's rally around them and support them and, and pray for them. Uh, the second thing I want to mention is that um, I want to thank you for your prayers and your patience with us. It's been six weeks now since we've made all these uh, changes here at Wheaton Bible Church. And I do want you to know that we are aware that we have sound issues in this room. And as a result of that, sometimes depending on where you're sitting, you will experience sound, pitch, and tone in, in different uh, ways, at different volume levels. And so we've had teams of engineers in here, now that we're using the space exclusively for contemporary worship, and, and we're working on it. And on our plan, Lord willing, is over the next months to be able to put in brand new state-of-the-art speakers, as well as acoustic panels and other acoustic aspects that should help alleviate some of the problem. It won't be a perfect solution, but it will get us significantly down the road. Now, would you bow with me as we pray? Father, uh, we come to you today, and we, as, as a family of God, uh, we want to pray for people in this room, for people throughout our church, uh, for people that are hurting right now. It, it's been crazy this week the things that have come up. And I just ask that you would bring comfort and grace, that you would draw people to Jesus in the midst of the darkness. They would see his light. I want to pray for Dan and Diane Pearson and pray that you would comfort their breaking heart, that you would bless them. For Susan, I, I just pray that you would give grace. For others, Father, that have lost loved ones, uh, just this week or so, I, I just pray that you would bring comfort and healing. We thank you that you are our physician father, that you are the great healer, that you bring us through certain things as part of your assignments, and yet you worked us all together for good. Give us that sense of comfort. And we thank you now that we can look into your word and I pray, God, that this moment would be a spiritual experience where we sense the presence of the living God. Amen. Now, we are in a remarkable section of God's Word, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we've entitled this series, as we're working our way through the sermon, 
the upside-down kingdom. Why? Because here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls all of us, all of us to follow him by developing convictions and habits that are totally, I mean completely countercultural, upside down. And perhaps nowhere is this more evident than what Jesus has to say about prayer. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God's people pray like sparks fly upward. They praise God in the good times, in the difficult, in the stressful times. They beg for God's mercy. When they're feeling overwhelmed, riddled with fear, anxiety, confused, uh, struggling with doubt, uh, God's people go to God and pray, oh God, have mercy. When they're angry, when they're bitter, they go to God. They pray about this, they pray about that. They pray for government, they pray for family, they pray for friends, they pray for their community. They pray that people will come to know Jesus Christ. But most of all, what we see in God's word is when God peoples pray, they pray that they would experience God. That God would become real to them. The, uh, that the wonder of the gospel that Jesus Christ has forgiven us and changed us and our union with Christ and by our union I mean our relationship with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection would be a game changer for us each and every day of our lives and that all the world would know Jesus but today's a different day uh, today prayer is no longer a cultural norm Jesus anticipated this Today, prayer is something that's unfamiliar. It's something that seems archaic and, and distant. For many of us, even as followers of Christ, believers in Jesus, prayer seems as awkward as those junior high dances we attended. So here, in the Sermon on the Mount, as we move into chapter 6, or through chapter 6, Jesus gives us what's called the Lord's Prayer. It's really better titled the Disciples' Prayer because it's a model for prayer. It's a model for how we who want to follow Jesus Christ should pray. So I want you to stand with me as we go to Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 9. Jesus is speaking and he says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today, our daily bread. Hey, let's do, you know, this is really good. This didn't happen in the first service. So let's start over, and I want you to say this out loud with me, okay? And I'm going to begin with our Father in heaven, okay? So here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we for forgive our... And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from the evil one. You may be seated. Now, there are three parts. How we address God, how we stay focused on God, and then how we bring our needs to God. Those are the three pieces in this puzzle of the, uh, uh, this model prayer. But I want to go to the very beginning, the very first line, uh, which introduces this prayer at the beginning of the verse where Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Jesus doesn't say this is what you should pray. He says, this is how you should pray. Now, of course, these words are wonderful. I have this prayer memorized, and I repeat it and amplify it and paraphrase it and uh, process it almost every day when I pray. But Jesus is not here giving us exact words we must pray. But instead, Jesus is giving us a, a, a structure a flow, a, a template, if you will, for how we can organize our prayer, what subjects we need to cover, and, and how it plays out. Now, before I begin, i got to ask you this question. Do you see here how much Jesus loves you? The next time Satan or somebody uh, whispers in your ear, hey man, God doesn't really care about you. Look what you're going through. If God really loved you, do you think you'd be going through this? I mean, where in the world is God? It's ridiculous to believe that God exists. The next time the enemy whispers that in your ear, you say, hey man, get lost. Jesus loves me so much. He taught me in the light how to pray in the darkness. Never doubt in the darkness what Jesus has taught you in the light. I read these words, and I got to tell you, I feel such an enormous amount of love, it made me weep on Friday. Jesus invites me to pray. Jesus, the God of the universe, the Redeemer, the Savior, uh, the King, wants me to talk to him. He knows we stumble and, and fumble, so he, he, he's giving us some structure here. That's how much he loves you. Do you see the love of Jesus here? It's incredible. Come, talk to me. I, I, I know, I know. Here, l let me tell you how to do it. So let's start with the first part. How do we begin uh, when we pray? Uh, what might that look like? A better question is, how do we address God? And Jesus says, pray, our Father in heaven. Our, our Father in heaven. And what you need to know is this was absolutely shocking for the Jews, century after century, all the way up into the Jews that heard these words in Jesus' day. Because the Jews never addressed God as Father. It was too intimate, too personal. Yet Jesus comes along in, in the Gospels and we see that every time Jesus prays or when Jesus is talking about God, he often, he regularly uses the term Father, oh Father. And here, what's incredible is Jesus invites us as his followers to refer to God as the Father. Now, you talk about upside down. 
Today, in, in the West, uh, most of us increasingly believe God doesn't exist. But yet, many of us still believe God exists. But what's happening is we're starting to lean towards believing that God is an it. That he is impersonal. Uh, Jesus says, no way, time out. God is every bit as personal as your best friend. And he's your father. He's the ideal. He's the perfect father. Which means his love for you is perfect. His wisdom for you is perfect. His plan for you is perfect. Yet he is your father in heaven, which means that his power is infinite. There's nothing beyond reach. God has your back. He has your front. He has your today. He has your tomorrow. Tomorrow, Jesus is saying, begin by addressing God, by thinking about that. Our Father who is in heaven, my Father who is in heaven. Now the question comes up, how in the world can Jesus say God is our Father? And the answer is because Jesus here is looking to the cross. Where according to the plan of God, uh, Jesus would go to the cross and die in our place as our substitute, bearing the penalty of our sin, so that the moment we believe, not only are we forgiven, but we are adopted into God's family. And we become precious sons and daughters of the God of the universe, and that God of the universe becomes our daddy, our father. And Jesus says, by the way, this issue is so important. This is how you should address God. Father. Prayer, therefore, never begins with you. Your list. But with reorienting to true north. Thanking God. Worshiping God. Celebrating God as our Father in Jesus Christ. Now look at these words from 1 John 3, 1. The first word, see, is emphatic in the Greek in terms of place of priority, and it means behold. It means dwell upon. It means drive into your heart and your mind. So what John is saying is, behold, I mean, never get over what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, that you are adopted in Jesus Christ and God has become your, your Father. What this means is Jesus is saying as you begin to pray, uh, think through the fact that your primary identity isn't your performance yesterday. It's not your appearance today. It's not your possessions. It's not a boyfriend or the absence of a boyfriend or, or whatever. Your primary identity is you are a beloved child of God. And your picture is on God's refrigerator. And it will never be removed. What this means, God is my Father, is that there is no situation, there is no location where you will ever be alone, not a nanosecond. What this means is the infinite God of the universe who superintends every event, every event in human history, calls every single star by name, carries you in his arms. 
He delights in you. He loves you. He kisses you. And so Jesus, right at the beginning, expressing how much he loves us because he wants to know us how to pray, uh, uh, reminds us to begin by um, basking in how much God loves us, or my Father. And here, let me just go under the surface for a second. Jesus is inviting you to change. Now follow me, change your cravings, your longings, your desires. So that instead of craving more stuff, more comfort, you long to experience God as your Father. Because Jesus knows when we understand this, we pray about this, we live in light of this upstream, then downstream our habits are going to change. Now this is the first part. Let's go on to the second. And what Jesus is doing, because beginning with this God-centered, we recalibrate to God, we stay in a God-centered moment because this is so important as we pray, Jesus tells us to linger. To linger in focusing on God. That's how we live our lives, guys. Man, I can't believe this thing has happened to me. You know, the, the moment adversity strikes, the best thing you can do is realize you are exactly where God wants you to be. God is my Father. So here Jesus tells us how to pray in three ways as we continue to focus on God's glory. Uh, so we focus on his name, we focus on his kingdom, and we focus on his will. I'll take those one at a time. Look at the word hallowed. Hallowed is an old word. Lincoln used it, President Lincoln used it in the Gettysburg Address, this hallowed ground, or this ground. And the word means to make holy. The word means to set apart. The word means to honor. So Jesus says, pray that God would be honored and revered in your heart. And it would leak through every aspect of your life. That God would be honored and revered in your family and you lead the pace. That God would be honored and revered in our, in our world. Now you talk about upside down. You are aware that in our Western culture today, we are experiencing the eradication of God. Sometimes it's radical, sometimes it's subtle. But what is replacing it is the enthronement of self. So self is in control. Self is in charge of our destiny. Self is in, in charge of our salvation. So in the words of New York Times columnist David Brooks, we today live in the culture of the big me. Life is all about self, all about me. Jesus says, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus says, stop. Prayer is about something bigger than your personal wish list because life is about something bigger than you. So Jesus here calls us to reorient, to recalibrate, to realign to God as we pray, to focus on his glory, his honor. Uh, uh, God, uh, 
would you be glorified in the way I'm going to handle this sales call? In this conversation I've got to have with my teenager. I want to look back and say, God, you were hallowed, you were, uh, you were hallowed, you were honored. By the way, this is the end. I, I love the end of Hebrews chapter 10, 12. Because at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the writer is talking about worshiping God acceptably. Think of it as praying acceptably. And so the question I ask is, well, what does it mean to worship God acceptably or to pray acceptably? And he answers us by telling us with reverence and awe. Right at the end of Hebrews 12. We worship God with reverence and awe. We pray with reverence and awe. That's exactly what our Lord is saying here. God, may your name be hallowed. Why? Because Jesus knows if you develop this habit about being passionate about his glory and his honor, then <clears throat> other habits, again, downstream will change, like your words, your attitudes, what you do with your time, what you do with your talent, what you do with your treasure. Second, let's go on. Jesus says, pray uh, your kingdom come. Pray that God's kingdom would come. In other words, you long, you are a person, you are a follower of Christ, and you are living an upside-down life. And so what does that look like? Man, you long to see God's sovereign, saving reign break through. Uh, God, would, would your kingdom break through in our family? Would your kingdom break through in our community? Would your kingdom break through in my heart and our country? God, would you break through here like you're breaking through in Syria, as we just saw in the video, as you're breaking through with many Muslims, as they're seeing dreams and visions of Jesus. God, would you break through? You're praying God's kingdom come, that Jesus would return, that he would come and, uh, for the final restoration of all things. In Hebrews chapter 11, and I, I've been in Hebrews chapter 11 devotionally for a couple of weeks now, and now I'm in chapter 12. But in chapter 11, what we have is this catalog of the heroes of faith, men and women who've exercised incredible faith. And one of the things we're told that characterizes these men and women is that they longed for a better country. Now, not a better United States, and there's nothing wrong with that, but there's something far more important than that. They long for a better country means they longed at the core of their being for heaven, for God's kingdom to come, for the heavenly city as we read over and over in chapters 11 and 12 in Hebrews. Now finally, let's go on here. Let's move through verse 10. Jesus says when you pray, you're not only focusing on God's name and God's glory and God's kingdom, uh, but, you, but pray, God, your will be done. And when Jesus calls us, he invites us to pray, your will be done. He's saying something profound. He's telling us that the good life is not found in the success of our will but in submission to God's will. Now that is flat, upside down. Uh, 
500 years ago, Martin Luther was meditating on, on these words, and he uh, paraphrased these words this way. Look at what Luther said. God, grant us grace to bear willingly all sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, and adversity. And to recognize, now here's where it gets really rich, that in this, your divine will is crucifying our will. Have you ever prayed that God would crucify your will? Do you pray that regularly? Uh, uh, When God brought Israel in the book of Exodus through the Red Sea, and the Red Sea was supernaturally parted, and Israel came through, God did not instantly take them to the promised land. He took them from slavery in Egypt to a desert. And that's how God works in our lives. It's part of his will to get us to our future, to get us to spiritual maturity. So what does God do? He takes us through the desert. Times of testing, times of trial to refine us, to to deepen us so we'll live God-centered, God-focused lives. As a matter of fact, most of the books of Moses, the earliest books in the Bible, are set in the desert. And yet we don't like it. Uh, We don't like hard times. Uh, We don't like uh, setbacks. We don't like pain. And in those moments, uh, many of us uh, succumb to thinking, you know, it goes like this. I'm beginning to think I know what's better for my life than God. And, And honestly, I struggled with that as my first wife was dying of cancer. Really, God? You're going to do this to my four kids? And in those moments, we think we know better. And boy, uh, what we're wrestling with, is it going to be my will or is it going to be God's will? And how did Jesus handle that? Well, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane facing the greatest agony, the greatest trial in human history, what did Jesus do? Jesus turned to God and said, take this cup, but um, I, I, I get it. So not my will, but your will be done. Can you say that? Do you say that? This is how we as followers of Jesus Christ impact the others around us. We live countercultural lives. Our values are upside down. This is riddled throughout this prayer. And this is a prayer of extraordinary love. Because Jesus is offering us the best life here. Now let me go on to the third part, these last three statements in verses 11, 12, and 13. And so what I want you to see is that Jesus is now moving, he's pivoting from us focusing on God's glory, how we begin our prayers, to focusing on our needs. It's not an either or, it's a both and. It's always a both and. Hey God, I'm going to begin, I'm going to focus on you, on who you are, because I need to recalibrate But God, here's the stuff going on. So Jesus begins, pray, give us today our daily bread. 
Now, we think this is ridiculous. Really? Why, why would I pray this? But I got to tell you, Jesus' first century listeners did not. They got paid every day at the end of the day, sometimes in the morning, but at the end of the day for the work they did that day. And if they didn't work, they didn't get paid. And because the pay was so low, most people didn't have any savings. So if they didn't work, they didn't get paid, and they didn't eat. So this isn't empty rhetoric. Jesus' listeners knew they needed to pray, they needed to trust God daily. And Jesus is inviting all of us to do the same, uh, to understand and acknowledge our dependence upon him for the necessity of life. You've got credit card debt. Bring it to Jesus and daily. Give us today. You've got outstanding student loans. Bring it to Jesus daily. You've got this thing going on in your marriage and you're struggling. Bring it to Jesus daily. Give us today. Or this relationship or lack of relationship or this situation at work and, and uh, you find yourself sort of waffling spiritually. Bring it, be honest. Bring it to Jesus every day. You mothers, Jesus is inviting you to bring that struggle with your child or your child's struggle to him daily. You got this thing going on at work daily. Now let's go on, verse 10. When I come to verse 10, it's like, okay, no, wait a minute. How, why did Jesus say this? I mean, of all the things Jesus says, he says, pray, think about, and live in life of your forgiveness. Your divine forgiveness. So much so that you forgive others. Now this issue of forgiveness is uh, so hard to receive, so hard to extend. And yet it's so important that Jesus tells us to pray about it. And, and telling us, now follow this, in telling us to pray about forgiveness and to live in light of our forgiveness and to do that on a daily basis and extend it, Jesus is telling us that forgiveness is one of the most important aspects of life. That it's so vital to your psychological, emotional, spiritual health that you understand that you are not guilty before God, that you are forgiven, uh, that you are not worthless, that you are forgiven and, and, and you are loved, and then you can forgive others. Now, Jesus here uses the word debt, but he's not talking about money. He uses the word debt because uh, he's talking about sin, and his point is that sin always incurs a liability. And we know he's talking about sin because when he comes back to the subject of forgiveness in verses 14 and 15, he repeatedly talks about sin. So what Jesus is saying is if you speed and you get a speeding ticket, you, you have to pay the fine. Uh, the same thing with life, the same with thing with your behavior, your words, your thoughts. Uh, when you sin, you incur a liability. You have an affair. And you incur a liability that money can't overcome. But forgiveness can. I, I know what I've done is awful. And, 
I'm, I, I, I know I have so hurt you, but would you forgive me? Man, that is so hard. And I want to get there, but it's going to take a long, long time. But yes, I will forgive you. Sin incurs a liability. Jesus calls it a debt. Jesus says, though, don't live this way. You live in light of the fact that you are forgiven and you forgive others. And you are so conscious of your forgiveness and it's such a reality, a daily reality, a part of your life that, man, you extend forgiveness to people like your dad or your mother or someone that has hurt you. And here, don't miss this, Jesus is offering a way to emotional and spiritual healing. Relative, it just happens to be relative to one of the biggest needs in life. I mean, could you imagine how different our culture would uh, be if we uh, didn't live in this state of unforgiveness? But instead, we lived in a state of forgiveness. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I said that. Would you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Do you understand how unforgiveness is behind war, is behind divorce, is behind hate, is behind abuse, and all of these things? Where in the world is forgiveness? Jesus says, pray about it daily. It's not incidental. It's central. Let's go on. In verse 13, Jesus concludes and says, pray that God will not lead you into temptation, but he will deliver you to the, from the evil one. Now, what Jesus is doing here is moving from one essential to another. And he's asking, inviting that we would pray for deliverance from temptation. When he says, lead not, it's a figure of speech that means lead away. God, lead me away from temptation. And why? Because temptation always, always tries to convince you that what is ugly in God's sight is really beautiful. Well, it's okay if I sleep with this guy. And temptation tries to convince you that what's beautiful in God's sight is, is really ugly. And we face temptation daily. Uh, temptation to envy, temptation to be pride, temptation to say things we shouldn't say. Now, Jesus is not saying pray that you will never experience temptation. Jesus is not saying pray that you will never experience heartache and, uh, and brokenness and uh, dysfunction. But Jesus is saying, man, when you get in those situations, pray that you will cling to God. And that God will deliver you and you cry out, you cry out for mercy. Now, I want to land this, and because this is so important, I want to be bold, because I want you to understand, and here we come to the takeaways, Jesus is inviting you to grab three habits relative to your prayer life. 
Habit number one is you pray daily. You have a daily time of prayer. Jesus says, give us today. He's assuming this. And, I, and again, this is so upside down. I know you're busy. I'm busy. I, I know that there's this tendency to move through life and we only come to God when there's a crisis or when we need the genie to pop out of the bottle or, or, or whatever. But Jesus is saying, habit number one, pray daily. That's what my followers do. Habit number two, in your daily prayer, always begin with God. I, I mean, how cool is this? You're, you're taking your eyes off yourself. That's the fundamental realignment. It's totally countercultural, upside down. And you praise and you thank God for his glory. Man, his name is his kingdom, his will. And then, and then you pray about your needs. Now why? Uh, why this order? Why this flow? Because Jesus knows until you live vertically, you're never going to have much success as God counts success living horizontally. And until your orientation is vertical and God is on your radar screen and you view the rest of your life through the lens of the sovereignty and the goodness and the grace of God in Jesus, uh, then you're going to start to track. And guys, we live in a world, I mean, think about our culture. It's increasingly hostile, increasingly chaotic. Our, our, our personal, interpersonal relationships are, are, are so desperate, desperate. So many people are living right on the edge. And Jesus is saying, don't be a part of the problem. Be a part of the solution. Pray daily. Begin when you pray daily by focusing on God. And the third habit here that I long for you to embrace is that Jesus is inviting you to make these themes your themes when you pray. And I, as a man, have chosen to do that. And I think, why in the world wouldn't you? To, to celebrate God's love, he's your father. Uh, God's holiness, God's name, God's kingdom. Would you, would you please come, man? I want to long for this better country. I don't do that right now, but help me to long for, uh, to being with my friends in the streets of gold, seeing the splendor of the nations coming into Jerusalem. Who doesn't want to be there? I do. That I would live in light of God's will, that I would bring my necessities, I would uh, ask God for the grace to live in light of the wonder that I'm forgiven so that I'm not holding grudges. And then, uh, then I'm fighting temptation by, uh, by praying about it. Three habits, daily prayer, begin with God when you pray and use these themes to be themes. You don't have to use the words, but the words are really good. Now let me say this. I am not, in offering these three habits, saying, suck it up, you have to do this on your own, because you and I can't do this, we can't pray like this. So what the gospel means, and what Jesus ultimately did in dying for us and being raised from the dead, is enables us to look to him and the forgiveness and adoption and the other things we enjoy and to the extent we look to Jesus and see how much he loves us, then it melts our heart. And this is how we want to pray. 
But you have to make that look for these to become habits. And as these become habits, other habits will change. Before I pray, um, let me just say that as we ask, uh, ask the ushers to come forward, there's going to be a slide on the screen behind me, and this is a hard shift and not a great shift, but I just want you to know I'm just going to say this really briefly, that we're introducing a new way to give to Wheaton Bible Church, and you'll see it on the slide. Now let's pray. Father, where in the world do words like this come from? How can it be that you love us this much? That you want to always talk to us, that you want us to always talk to you? Who are we in light of who you are? God, I want to pray that you would enable us right now in this moment to nail to the cross our pride and our independence and that these habits, by your grace, by the power of the Spirit, would become our habits. God, I, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters, these students, these children that they would understand the radical nature of this and that they would choose to be a part of the solution. In Jesus' name, amen.